As we turn our hearts to God's Word, I just want to read our text for us this morning out of Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 16. 11 to 16. And we'll be looking at, for the next several weeks, God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes this, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather... Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, So are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward those branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? There's a lot there, and we're not going to get through it all today. (laughs) So uh, your outline is, is kind of partly review to remind us where we're at in the book of Romans. And partly we'll get into a couple of the verses here this morning. But remember, Paul started this message to the Jews back in chapter 9. He wanted them to understand that God has not forsaken them. But that God simply has kind of set them aside because of their unbelief. Um, It's God's purpose, it's always God's purpose to finish what he started in regard to Israel, in regard to the Jew, and his promises to them. As a church, we don't believe in replacement theology. Some theologians believe that Israel is no longer, and therefore all the blessings of Israel go directly to the church now, so it doesn't really matter uh, about national Israel. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches in any form at all. It's God's plan to finish his promises to his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And so these verses that we read this morning are part of an explanation of what God is doing in the area of salvation, even in this present time as we look around the world. And so here we learn that God has a plan for the Jew, but he also has a plan for the Gentile. God's plan encompasses both. And those are basically the two groups that make up the human race, either you're Jewish or you're Gentile. Now, some people have read up to this part in Romans, and they realize, unfortunately, they think that, well, God has no further purpose for Israel. And Paul shows us, and he has showed us, beginning in chapter 9, the foolishness of that argument. 
of that viewpoint. He teaches us that God has a plan and that God's plan will be fulfilled and it will be fulfilled completely. Uh, So we have to ask the question, has God canceled his promises to Israel? When you stop and you think, that's the question that Paul is asking in verse 1. Remember of chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he answers it there for us, by no means. You know, you stop and you think of Israel, this tiny little nation, this tiny little piece of property over in the Middle East. And it's literally surrounded by its enemies. It's very small. It's about the size of New Jersey, I think. It's, it's rather small. When we were over there several years ago, and we were down near the Dead Sea, all of a sudden we hear this, this F-15 flies by. I'm like, wow. And then another one. And I remember the tour guide saying, yeah, they're on constant patrol. And they're probably some of the best pilots outside of the United States in the world. They have to be. Because in a matter of three to four or five minutes, they could be flying over enemy territory. (laughs) So they don't fly very long in any one direction at all. Because they can't. It would take them outside the bounds of their, their, their national sovereign territory. And so it's surrounded, this small little piece of property is surrounded by hostile enemies. And this threat is ever-present. We see it today. And the basic threat that Israel has is from its Arab neighbors. And when you go back in time and you realize, well, this isn't anything new. <laughs> This has been going on for years and years and years and years. Because if you stop and you think about it, the history that we know of Israel and Abraham and Ishmael, all that goes back to when Abraham, remember the song? Father Abraham had many sons. Well, he had more than just two. But the first two were the issue. (laughs) And so what happened with Abraham was here he is dwelling in the land of Canaan. And all of a sudden, he's dwelling in a land where God says, hey, I'm going to provide for you. And this land is yours. I've given it to you, your forefathers, or to your your heirs, everybody. You're going to be blessed. What happened? There's a food shortage. There's a famine in the land. And so Abraham, rather than trust God and his promises, what does he do? He takes it into his own hands and he says, hey, let's get out of here. We'll go to Egypt. They have lots of food. And so God basically held Abraham accountable for that decision. He went down to Egypt. And even though he was promised that God, by God himself, that he would provide in the land of Canaan, he left and he went to Egypt in time to get his people some food, some sustenance. And I think that rather than trusting the promises of God, he decided to do what he thought was best. That always gets us in trouble, doesn't it? (laughs) When we do what we think is best. Sometimes it's just good to just kind of rest and say, okay, God, I don't know how this is going to work out, but, you know, um, at this point, I I don't really feel you leading me to do anything, so I'm not going to do anything. And it's when we get in trouble is when we pull that trigger and we jump the gun and we realize, wow, this is a reaction. It wasn't really an action. It wasn't God instructing me to do anything. It was just something I did. My defense mode kicked in, whatever it is. And you step outside the boundaries of the plan and purpose of God for you. Well, that's what happened to Abraham. So he went down to Egypt because of this food shortage. And even though... God had said, hey, I'm going to be with your seed and I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to provide for you. He went down there and as a result of that, he puts himself in a situation with Pharaoh where you remember the story. um, Pharaoh's interested in his wife and and uh, he ends up lying to Pharaoh and saying, well, that's my sister. And he was afraid to tell the truth because he thought, well, if I tell him the truth, then, you know, that's going to, you're not going to give us any food. Who knows? You can kill me and take my wife. I don't know what's going to happen. So, hey, no, this is my, my sister. And um, 
you know, it's a good thing to keep in mind that when you step outside of God's will, you compound your problems. See, and this is what happened with Abraham. And so Pharaoh ultimately found out that this thing was a lie, right? And what does he do? He kicks Abraham out. He says, get out of here. You're going to cause grief on my household. You're going to cause grief on our people. And so when he left Egypt, the problem was he didn't leave Egypt alone. Abraham didn't. Because when he was there, he took on a servant named Hagar. He was, she was an Egyptian uh, woman. And so here they go all the way back to the land of Canaan. And he takes this handmaiden, Hagar. And you know what happens from there. Okay, um, when he was again given the promise by God of a seed of offspring, what did he do? Did he believe the promise of God? No, he disbelieved the promise of God. He said, there's no way this is going to happen. God, unless you haven't looked, my wife is in her 90s. Not prime childbearing age, in case you haven't noticed. And so both him and Sarah kind of concocted this plan. Well, you know what? Hey, let's use Hagar as a uh, way to get offspring and go ahead and do that. And we'll have a child through Hagar. At least we'll have a child. Because obviously God has dropped the ball. (laughs) That was their belief. And so out of the loins of Abraham, born through Hagar, came a child by the name of what? Ishmael. You can read all about that in Genesis 16. But the Bible says that Ishmael was not the child of promise. Ishmael was not the covenant child, even though he was the firstborn. You can kind of see this issue developing, right? Ishmael wasn't the child of promise. He was not to be the son through whom God would bring out his Jewish people and and bring out his Messiah and his plan of redemption. That wasn't God's plan. And so Sarah, Genesis 21, verse 10, says, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be the heir with my son, even with Isaac. By that time, Isaac had been born through the promise of God, supernaturally. So Isaac is the promised child. Ishmael is not, even though he's the oldest. And so here this conflict arises because of someone's disobedience. Abraham was disobedient. He left Canaan. He didn't trust in God's promises to provide for him. And because he was disobedient... He lied to Pharaoh, and because he was of that, he was thrown out of the land. And then he took with him this Egyptian handmaiden. He got that Egyptian handmaiden pregnant, trying to help God produce this offspring, this promise that God had promised him. And then they produced Ishmael. And then when God gave him Isaac, fulfilling his original promise, there was conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. Because Ishmael was actually Abraham's oldest son. And that conflict goes on to this day. That's why we have all these issues in the Middle East. And so Ishmael produced much of the Arab people. And so the promises in Genesis 16.20 and the promise of Genesis 17 is that out of the loins of Ishmael would come a great people. It's not God's covenant people. But it was a great people. And as you read through Genesis 16 and 17, it indicates that Ishmael was not the covenant people, but they would actually, this great people that would come out of Ishmael would actually persecute the covenant people that would come out of Isaac. In Galatians... Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes this, and it kind of relates to the story. Galatians 3, 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed, singular seed, were the promises made. 
He said, not to the seeds as of many, but as of one and to the seed, which is Christ. So Abraham really initiated this issue between these two seeds, but only one of them would be the line through which ultimately the one seed, Christ, would come. So there's an area of conflict there. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 23, Paul continues. He says, But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Who's that? It's Ishmael. But he of the free woman, that is basically after Sarah, was born by promise. So when you look at this, the child of the bondwoman was an act of the flesh. And the Bible says that anything of the flesh is what? Sin, right? So, not fulfilling the promise of God. And then down there in in Galatians 4.28, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of what? Promise. But verse 29 says, But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Even so it is now. And so the children of Ishmael still persecute the children of Isaac. That's why we have all this conflict going on. And so it's important to understand that that's kind of the background upon which Paul talks here in Genesis 9, 10, and 11. John MacArthur also points out, it's interesting, later in the patriarchal line, there were two sons born by the name of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the son of promise. Esau was not. Out of Esau's loins, he points out, came the Edomites. Again, a people that we know today as Arab people. And it fascinates, it's fascinating to look at Genesis 36.3. And it says, when it lists Esau's wife, it lists a daughter of Ishmael. So you have the line of Ishmael, not the children of promise, but from the loins of Abraham. And the line of Esau, not the children of promise, but from also from the loins of Abraham. They unite together against God's promised people. And so you can see they have a lot going on against them just because of their history. And that's why constantly Israel's in the news, the Middle East is in the news. It all plays out of that. Well, we saw, just in way of review here, in verses 1 through 10, that God promised of not rejecting Israel totally. It involves the grace of God. And we looked at this back in November. That it involved God's saving grace. God's saving grace. He says there in verse 1 that God has rejected, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he gives himself as an illustration. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And what Paul's point is, is that you know what? If God saved me, I'm a Jew. Obviously, God hasn't cut off all the Jewish people. He's still extending grace to them. And to prove it, Paul uses himself. And then he goes on and he uses the illustration of Elijah. And then in verse uh, 2 to 4, he talks about God's past selection. Paul drew from the life of Elijah there to demonstrate the fact that God always has a remnant. Remember, Elijah was up on Mount Carmel and said, oh, whoa, you know, this is going to be horrible. And and God said, no, you know what? I still have more than 7,000 who had not bowed to Baal yet. And so God always has a remnant. And then Paul lists himself as this present selection of grace. And he uses that as an illustration to say, hey, God is still at work within the Jewish people. So it involved the grace of God. Now, today we want to look at, we're going to begin to look at, it involves the grafting of God in verses 11 to 24. And we read that text. So look at verse 11 with me, and we'll start there. As I began to read this, I couldn't help but remember a couple weeks ago when Sam Rajkumar showed a video at our men's group of the 1970, or 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. 
And Derek Redmond, who ran the 400-meter semifinal race, and he was very, you know, kind of in his groove there, and he's running the race, and the video shows him all of a sudden he just falls to the ground in the middle of this race. And he apparently had pulled a hamstring. And he went down, he stumbled, and he, he got back up, and he starts limping, kind of like dragging his leg toward the finish line. And people came out, tried to help me, pushed him all away. And then finally his dad came out of the stands and basically helped him across the finish line. And when I read verse 1, or, or verse 11, excuse me, I thought of that video because it's so, uh, it makes so much sense. So Paul asked this question. He says, so I ask, did they, who Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? This is the reason, the purpose here, what's going on here. This is what we're looking at. And so he basically Ask that question back in verse 1 as well. A similar question. Has God rejected his people? Kind of a rhetorical question. And he says, by no means. And he says the same thing in verse 11. He says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he says, by no means. See, the Bible indicates that Jesus came to the nation of Israel and he presented himself to them as their Messiah. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. And what did they do? Well, John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13 tells us this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. So Jesus came to his own people, and he was Jewish, and and they rejected him. Um, Luke 19 tells us about how Jesus prophesies about the physical collapse of Israel when Jerusalem would be destroyed. He talks all about that. In verse 41 it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will, be, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not... Know the time of your visitation. See, Jesus came to Israel. They rejected him. So what Paul is saying is, so what does God do? He sets them aside. He puts them on the shelf. They stumbled. And see, it's so important that we understand that because when we, when we dig down to what these words mean... Why did this have to happen? Why did they have to stumble? He asked the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? God forbid. And we saw how that's kind of a a rhetorical question there. Now, if you look down at verse 8... Back up to verse 8, at the end of chapter 10... You see where basically God says, you know what? All day long I have held out my hands to who? A disobedient and contrary people. And then in verse 8, it says God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Down to this very day. David says in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap. Remember, when we looked at that, we talked about how what that means is they're sitting at a table with all the things that they're familiar with, all the religious traditions, all the religious rituals. And what God is saying through Paul is that, you know what, the very things that you are worshiping are the wrong things and they're going to be a trap to you. They're going to be a stumbling block. Verse 10, it says, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here you have Israel portrayed as this disobedient people. They're contrary, they're blind, they're deaf. 
and even their own religious uh, practices become a trap and a snare to them. I mean, this is things that, you know, you, it's kind of, you talk about judgment. That's what he's talking about here. And so then he comes back in verse 11 and he says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 to 12, Jesus says, I say unto you that many shall come from the east, and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, guess what? The kingdom of heaven is going to be populated by more than just Jews. It's going to be populated by Gentiles as well. But it says, but the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, shall be cast into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the very people for whom the kingdom was intended... And to whom it was offered are going to be shut out of it for a period of time because God is going to gather people from the east and the west of the Gentile nations and bring them into the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 21 verse 19, Jesus gives, begins to give these parables dealing with this very subject. And he talks about the, the fig tree alongside of the, the road with no fruit, remember? And he says in verse 19, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once, the fig tree withered. What did that fig tree depict? It depicted spiritually dead Israel. The leaves depicted their outward form of religion. But there was no fruit. It pictured that spiritual barrenness. Because fruit in the Bible, beloved, especially in the New Testament, is always indicative of salvation. You can't fake fruit. The minute you try to bite into a fake fruit, you know it's fake, right? I remember they used to have that fake fruit. It'd be made out of wax or something. I remember as a little kid one time I bit in and went, oh, not good. Matthew 7, verse 18, it says, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. See, Israel had all the external trappings of, of what looked to be good. They had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had all the vestments, the rituals, the ceremonies, all the holy days. But you know what? She had no spiritual fruit. <laughs> In Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32, Jesus goes on, he gives a parable of two sons. And you remember that, the, the vineyard. One said he wouldn't work in the vineyard, and the other one uh, uh, said he would, but he didn't. Remember that story? And Jesus asked the religious leaders, which one of these two did the will of the Father? And the Pharisees answered the first. And Jesus replied, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. I mean, he's talking to the religious people of his day. He's trying to show them the error of their ways. And even down further in verses 33 to 40, he gives the parable of the landowner. The guy who planted a vineyard, he rented it out, left it. At harvest time, he sent his slaves to collect the rent, remember? In verse 35, it says the renters, first of all, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. I mean, these are people there that are they're ready to collect the rent. And the second group, they did the same thing. Finally, the landowner said, you know what, I, I, I'm going to send the, the man in charge, I'm going to send my son. He's a direct representative of me. Well, what they do to him? They killed him. <laughs> so Jesus asked this question, what should the landowner do to the renters? And the chief priests and the elders, the religious people of the day said, bring those wretches to a wretched end. They were indicting themselves and they didn't even realize it. Or in verse 40, or 42 of Matthew 21, it says, the stone which the builders rejected... This became the what? Chief corner stone. In verse 43, Matthew goes on. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Who? Israel. And given to a people producing the fruit of it. In other words, 
The rejection of Jesus by the priests and the Pharisees and the religious group resulted in the loss of the kingdom for them. Well, in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, we have the parable of the wedding feast. And that's a a king. He had a son who was getting married, festive event. He sent his slaves out to invite all the friends. What did they do? The friends killed the slaves who brought the invitation. I mean, think about it. I mean, someone comes to your house. Hey, we're having a party. Do you want to come? Yeah, off with your head, pal. It just doesn't make any sense. The friends killed the slaves who brought the invitation. That's an unthinkable thing. But that's exactly what Jesus was trying to do. He's pointing out the absurdity of their own religious situation. And in verse 8 of of Matthew 22, it says, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Who is that indicting? It's indicting the spiritual condition of those Jews of Israel. In verse 22, he says, Go therefore to the main highways and byways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. So remember, when God chose Israel, it was through Israel that the message of the gospel, the Messiah, the word of God, everything was to come. But that's not what Israel did. Israel took all those blessings that God put upon them, and what they do? They hoarded it for themselves. And so God said, all right, fine. You don't want to play? You're going to have a time out. And then in Matthew 23, Jesus really takes to task the Pharisees. He pronounces eight woes on their religious system. Finally, in verses 37 to 39, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, Israel is still unwilling. Even though the nation has been preserved, that Israel is back in her land, she's still spiritually unblessed. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. They they live in constant turmoil. I mean, a huge portion of their dollars goes to defense because they can't have peace. And so Israel stumbles... Over Christ. Because of their spiritual lack of fruit, the spiritual understanding that they needed. You know, when you think of, in the New Testament, you think of our lives, you relate it to our own lives. John 15, 6 says... If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. In in John 15, 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it could bear more fruit. How does that apply to us? Stop and ask yourselves, are you seeing the fruit of God in your life? Do you see God... Raising up fruit in your life. The New Testament describes fruit as in Galatians chapter 5 as godly attitudes, love, joy, peace, all those things. In Philippians verse, chapter 1 verse 11, it's, it's called righteous behavior. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15, it's related to praise. And even in Romans chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, it talks about the fruit of leading others to faith in Jesus as Messiah. Do you see fruit in your life as a believer? Matthew seven sixteen says, you'll know them by their fruits. What is your life producing? 
So they, they stumbled here. But the second thing that I, it's not in your outline there, but the second thing that I want you to see is that this stumbling was not a permanent fall. And what's interesting, when you look at verse 1, it says, has God rejected his people by no means for I'm, or, or excuse me, verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That word stumble there, Pateo, it's an interesting verb. It means just to stumble. That's what it means. To trip. To lose your balance. So it says, did they stumble in order that, for the purpose of, that they might fall? Well, that's a different word. That means to fall in a situation where you're not going to get back up. It's one thing to stumble, right? I mean, we've probably all stumbled. I remember one time I was out here and I was running up the stairs. And I was carrying something here at the church. It was in the summertime. And my foot caught on the, on the step. I just went down, you know, just stumbled. And I got right up because I wonder if anybody saw me, you know. I, mean, I didn't even know if I hurt myself or not. I got to get up, you know. Well, the second kind of fall here is the kind of fall you're not going to get up from. You're just going to lay there in pain and agony. You may never even walk again. See, it's one thing to stumble. It's another thing to hit so hard that you're totally debilitated and you're going to never, ever get up again. That's what that second word means. So did they stumble in order that they would never, ever get up and walk again? The question is, is there stumbling? Is Israel's stumbling complete? Is it irreversible? Is it a permanent falling from which there's no recovery? You could say this, is national Israel dead? Are they excluded from all the promises of God? Well, what Paul says there, God forbid. He says, by no means. By no means. Yeah, they rejected the Messiah. And God kind of set them on the shelf for a timeout. But it's not a permanent timeout. When you stop and you draw that conclusion that God is done with Israel, you go against all the promises that are found throughout the scriptures regarding God's chosen people. And you notice here, he says that even down in verse 25 um, of chapter 11, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's not permanent. It's not completely hardened. And a lot of people believe that That's what it is. That's what replacement theology would teach and other people like that. And that's not what scripture indicates. So somehow this stumbling is going to be reversed. In verse 3 of chapter 12 of Genesis, God says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's... Obviously, including everybody, the Gentiles, the nations, wherever you come from, all those will be blessed through Israel. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will, bo- I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like a bitter weeping over a firstborn. That indicates that one day Israel will understand what they did with their Messiah and they will repent. And so it's a partial hardening here. So that idea that so they did stumble in order that they might fall. He says by no means. It's just a trip. They're just tripped up. They just stumbled over who Christ was. But look at what it says. It says, rather, through their trespass, that's an interesting word, 
It kind of gives the purpose of their stumbling here. What's the reason behind it? They didn't stumble in order to be totally out of the race. That wasn't the purpose. No, he says it has a purpose. God has a purpose in everything, always. He says, rather through their trespass, what? Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? That God's original plan was to come to Israel and work through them. But because Israel rejected God's plan, God was rejected by Israel. God said, that's okay. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use it for my purpose. I'm going to use even your rejection of the Messiah for my ultimate glory and my purpose. Because I am God and you're not. I mean, isn't it interesting that God can use even our sin, beloved, for his ultimate glory. In our refinement. That doesn't mean we run out in sin. But either God is sovereign or he's not. And so when he says here... Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That word trespass there really has the idea of the rejection of the only means of salvation through Christ. It has the idea of sin. Some translations say their their fall, but it's pretty much proper rendering there should be the word trespass. And so Israel wouldn't respond to the gospel. And so God said, that's all right. I'm going to use that to reach the Gentiles. So they stumbled over Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 8 says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And their doom, they were also appointed. See, when you stop and you think about where Israel is in relationship to the Messiah, they're they're very far removed. That's why it's such a blessing when you hear of someone who is a completed Jew, someone who is, is a Messianic Jew, someone who's come to faith in Christ even though they're Jewish. They don't stop being Jewish. They're still Jewish. But now all of a sudden they understand God has given them salvation, that he's blessed them. And so even through their stumbling, what happened? God used that to bring salvation to most of us who are Gentiles. I mean, God has been doing this long ago. Um, Throughout the Old Testament, you can read scripture after scripture that that God says, you know what, I'm going to use the stumbling of Israel, to reach out to those who are Gentile. So he says, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's one of the first purposes of God doing this, of of allowing them to stumble. But then he also says, so as to make Israel, look at what it says there, jealous, jealous. A lot of times when we think of the word jealous, do good things come to our minds? No. We think of jealousy as sin. Well, this word is actually a jealousy that causes a good outcome. So what Paul is saying is that, you know what? I came, Jesus came to you, Israel. You rejected God's plan of salvation. You rejected the Messiah. So God doesn't just trash everything. He says, all right, you know, I'm going to use this for my glory. Because Israel's not going to listen. People like Paul and others are going to go preach to the Gentiles. Well, you know what? The Gentiles are going to respond. As a matter of fact, they're going to respond overwhelmingly. Because, you know what? They were never part of this deal before. Think about it. In the Old Testament, who, who had the temple? The Jews. Who had the priests? The Jews. You know, the Gentiles, they were out there and they're pagan, left to them pagan selves. They weren't part of that group. Well, now all of a sudden God says, hey, not so fast, Israel. You know, you can't just do whatever you want, whenever you want, and expect my blessing. 
And so they reject God's plan. Therefore, they find themselves in a place of judgment under the the hand of judgment by God. And then all of a sudden, these Gentiles start to be completed in Christ. They start to get saved. and, And God does a work in them. And all of a sudden, you have these religious Jews going, hey, wait a minute. What about us? See, we're God's chosen people. Those dirty Gentiles, you can't save them. And so we see how this kind of thing develops here. Even in, in, in Acts chapter 13, 46 and 47, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Who? The Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, what are we going to do? We're going to turn to the Gentiles, he says. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I mean, when you stop and think about it, we owe a lot of, a great deal of debt and thanks to unbelieving Israel. I mean, we wish that they would turn back to the Messiah. One day they will. But you know what? It's, it's through that means that we were saved. It's through that means that God used it for his glory. And so when he says here in verse 11, that rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make them jealous, that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, what's it just in general, the Gentile world, he's saying, if good can come out of this, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, what's he say? How much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, hey, I'm not done with Israel yet. Don't think I'm just going to flop them off on the shelf and then throw them in the trash heap. I'm still going to include them ultimately in my plan. They'll be back. And so when you stop and you think about it, this trespass in verse 12 or this fall really deals with the sin of rejecting Christ. And because they rejected Christ, the whole Gentile world has heard about Christ. And so he's made them jealous as a result it has the idea of, of making someone uh, zealous. See, the, 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 the Gentiles were responding to the gospel. They were being included within the plan of God. And all of a sudden, the Jews find themselves on the sidelines. And they're going, hey, wait a minute. This doesn't look right. What's wrong with this picture? So the purpose of Israel's unbelief wasn't so that God could just forget about them. It was so that God could use salvation of the Gentiles that were getting saved to provoke Israel to come back and follow him in the gospel. And so when you look at verses 13 through 14 there, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then... As I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow, look, to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. I remember who Paul was. Paul was a Pharisee. He wasn't just nobody. Philippians 3.5 says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. And now he fashions himself as an apostle of the Gentiles? What about, what's this drastic change here, Paul? Because Paul, remember, said that, you know what? I'll become anything to anybody if I can save some, right? And that was his intent. And it was through God's grace that God was able to use him to bring the gospel not only to some of his countrymen, but to the Gentiles predominantly, which would in turn make his own people jealous. See, they, they wanted 
Israel to see the Gentiles being blessed by God so they could say, hey, wait a minute, that's, that's, we should be under the hand of blessing. Why aren't we under the hand of blessing, Paul? Well, because you rejected the Messiah. And so that word jealousy is not a negative term here. It's used in a positive way. It has the idea of admiration. The idea of striving after something. You know, that's no different for us today, right? As we come to faith in Christ and the Lord transforms, He changes our life. Hopefully people that maybe ran around with this at one time look at us and go, wow, what's different about you? How do I have that? And so Israel, on an individual Jewish basis, would look at itself and say, look at what we missed. We're, we're kind of on the losing end of the stick here. And seeing the glory of God in the, the life of the Gentile church, they're drawn to Christ. I mean, Jesus knew that this would provoke great jealousy among the Jews. In Matthew 27, verse 18, he said, in verse 18, he says, For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. They were jealous. Acts 15, verse 7, or Acts 5, 17, it says, The people from Jerusalem were bringing the sick and the demon-possessed to Paul. It says, And they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, those are the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, it says. See, this is just playing into what Jesus prophesied would happen. Even in Acts chapter 13, verses 44 to 45, it says, The next Sabbath day, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken of by Paul and were blaspheming. See, the, the, the Jewish leaders had it all wrong. They were ultimately afraid of losing control over their people. I mean, when you stop and think about it, influence is a very powerful thing, is it not? And in verse 14, it indicates the reason for the salvation of the Gentiles was so that the Jews would be moved to jealousy and want what the Gentiles had. Well, what did they have at that point? They had a genuine relationship with their creator, God. See, that's part of our responsibility today is to make people jealous of our relationship with God in a good way. That they would be drawn to Christ. That they would begin to think, wow, how can I have that peace? How can I have that joy? How can I have that forgiveness that you speak about? Ken Hughes in his commentary, he relates an illustration. He says this, My dean during seminary days was a brilliant Jew, Dr. Charles Feinberg. Written incredible commentaries. Just after Dr. Feinberg graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Pittsburgh, he lived in an Orthodox Jewish household. That household had a Sabbath Gentile. A Gentile woman who was hired to serve them on the Sabbath because they can't do any work on the Sabbath. Though Feinberg was not aware of it, this woman had taken the rites of purification simply so she could bear witness in that home. Feinberg was attracted by the quality of this believer's life and began to ask questions. Although the woman could not give him all the answers, she took him to Dr. John Solomon, then a resident head of the American Board of the Mission to the Jews. And Dr. Feinberg was led to Christ. He had been made thirsty, jealous, so to speak, beautifully jealous by this cleaning woman. <laughs> he goes on, he says, the church is to, is to be a place where there is such a love for Christ and such a love for each other that Jews and Gentiles become thirsty, thirsty for that relationship with Christ. I mean, that's what we're called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul wanted. Paul wanted to live his life in such a way that he could draw other people to the Savior. 
He says in verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, in other words, you know what? Okay, he's setting them on the sideline for a time, but you know what? Look at what's happening in the world. People are being reconciled to their God, through Christ. He says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? That's not speaking of the resurrection. That's speaking of spiritual life. What Paul is indicating there is, hey, don't give up on Israel. Don't believe just because they're sitting out for a couple plays that they're done. Because the game's not over yet. And God has not completed his plan nor his promises for the nation of Israel. And you say, well, why does that matter? It matters because the promises of Israel are still in effect. And so we read one, you know, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. All you have to do is look around the world and look at how certain countries treat Israel and then look at the quality of life in those countries. I mean, that's a promise that you can take to the bank or a curse, if you will. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, and close with this. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he writes, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, look at what it says, you will never stumble. You will never stumble. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that even though we looked at just these first couple verses, that you would help us to understand your plan concerning us and concerning your people, the people of Israel. And Father, how your plan will be fulfilled. And Father, how that at times, currently you have set Israel kind of on the sideline. Spiritually, in a sense. And they're not really under your hand of blessing. In a way, they're under your hand of judgment. But that even has a purpose for us, to be able to share the gospel with the Gentile world and to share the gospel with family and friends and even hear the gospel ourselves and be saved. Because it's for that purpose that Israel is, at the current time, set aside but Lord we thank you that your promises will one day come true that one day they will look upon whom whom they have pierced and they will repent and they will acknowledge you as their true God so Father we just pray that we would be good proper representatives of your son the Lord Jesus Christ and Lord that we'd be willing to do whatever it takes to take some people to heaven with us Lord, that we would be able to share the gospel, not just through our lips, but Lord, through our lives, that we would live lives that are, that depict a change in us. Lord, we're not perfect by any means. We all fail, probably sin in a myriad of ways each and every day. But Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that even though we do stumble, we don't fall in a way in which we can never get back up. Lord, that you are always there. Your forgiveness has covered our past, present, future sins. And Lord, that it's in Christ that we have that reconciliation with you, that relationship with you. So Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who is yet to put their faith, their trust in you, to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, save me from my sin. Father, that's a a prayer that God can answer even here this morning. That he'll transform you. He'll turn you into somebody that he desires you to be. And that you can begin to serve him in a way that you never could before. 
Father, we thank you for the trials, tribulations you bring into our lives and how that even draws us closer to Christ. Lord, sometimes these things are hard to go through. And yet, Father, they're from your hand. And Lord, we have to embrace them as such. And so, Father, we pray for the grace and the strength to see us through all these things. We ask all these things, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.